Hi, my name is Kara Frederick. I'm the research associate here at the Center for a New American Security for the Technology and National Security Program. I'm joined today by Paul Shari, the Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program here at CNAS, and Elsa Kenya, Adjunct Fellow here at C CNAS. Additionally, we have with us Mary Wareham from the Advocacy Director of the Arms Division of Human Rights Watch and Coordinator of the Global Campaign to Stop Killer Robots. Mary, I'll start with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your organization's work and what you do? Sure thing. Yes, so I work for Human Rights Watch. This is actually the 20th year since I joined the organization. I spend about half of my time supporting our research in the field to document the use of particularly indiscriminate and just horrible weapons, uh, landmines, cluster munitions, incendiary weapons, a little bit on chemical weapons lately. Uh, but, but I also do advocacy. Uh, to follow up on the research findings and to support the treaties that we have in place uh, for, for specific weapon systems. I spend about the other half of my time coordinating what we call the campaign to stop killer robots and that's the global coalition of non-governmental organizations that uh, Human Rights Watch and others launched back in April 2013, so five years ago, with a single call. The campaign calls for a preemptive ban on the development, production, and use of fully autonomous weapons. So what are some of your biggest concerns about the use of autonomous weapons? We first put out a research report on this topic at Human Rights Watch at the end of 2012 and called it Losing Humanity, the case against killer robots. In that report, we looked at the trend towards ever greater autonomy in weapon systems and looked at what some of the military planning documents were stating at that time. Uh, and a couple of them were talking about full autonomy as being a, an objective. Uh, for us, that raised the alarm. We were concerned to retain uh, human control over the selection of targets and the use of force. Why do we want to do that? Because we do not want machines to take on that task of killing uh, on the battlefield, but also in policing, law enforcement, and other circumstances. For us, it crosses a moral line. It's a step too far, and it raises a host of all sorts of different challenges. At the beginning of our work, we were looking at uh, would these kinds of weapon systems comply with international humanitarian law? and found a huge number of questions and doubts there. We looked at would they comply with international human rights law, so humanitarian law and human rights law, and also found a host of uh, challenges there. As the campaign has, has gotten bigger and, 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 and grown, uh, different constituencies have been coming on board, and they bring with them different concerns. The Nobel Peace Laureates are furious about this development. They uh, you know, see this as possibly making it easier to go to war if you do not so send your own soldiers into the battlefield, but rather uh, send in the machines. Um, they're also concerned about the destabilizing effects that this will have if only only a few countries are believed to be investing in in autonomy and weapon systems at the moment, but that won't stay the same. That won't stay for long. Uh, so the question is, will everybody have these kinds of weapon systems or is it better for nobody to have them and for us to draw, up, uh, draw, the, draw the line there? Um, so proliferation, global stability, legal issues, technical concerns, the artificial intelligence experts and roboticists who were with us at the time when we launched the campaign uh, have got a lot to say about the unanticipated consequences of what might happen. 
when fully autonomous weapons are deployed to the battlefield, including when they meet a system that has been designed, manufactured, developed, and fielded by the other side. Um, let's see, there's, there's, there's a multitude of concerns, so many that we decided the, the best, uh, the best uh, thing to do about this would be to draw the line and put in place legislation at the international level in the form of a treaty. Uh, and we also encourage national laws uh, and we want those to regulate, to prevent the development of fully autonomous weapon systems, to prevent these things from being produced and from being used. For us, that's the, the best option going forward. That makes sense. So as you just elucidated, this is obviously a very significant issue with broad implications. Uh, on that score, there was just in early April a convention on certain conventional weapons group of governmental experts on lethal autonomous weapon systems. So this meeting took place in Geneva, and uh, there is, I think you tweeted out some items of consensus that arose out of this. Paul, you were also in attendance, and this was the fifth year of these meetings. Uh, Mary, can you start and just let us know what came out of this meeting in your perspective? Sure thing. So about six months after we launched the campaign to stop killer robots, governments decided to put this topic on the international agenda. They called it Lethal Autonomous Weapon Systems and placed it on the agenda of this treaty based in Geneva, the Convention on Conventional Weapons, the CCW. Um, it has been five years, uh, but it's only been five meetings in that time. And each of those meetings are only about a week uh, in duration. So really, there has not been a lot of uh, huge amount of uh, in-depth discussion on this topic, even though you look at it over that period and you, you would come away with that impression. Um, another thing is that this is called a group of governmental experts, a GGE, but it's very different from other GGEs that have been established on other issues, for example, cybersecurity. Uh, the GGE at the, at the Convention on Conventional Weapons, it, it, it looks like a great big multilateral meeting. There are about, I think, 82 countries were in the room last week, uh, along with uh, interested UN agencies, the International Committee of the Red Cross, our campaign to stop killer robots and all of the non-governmental organizations involved in that, and, and a growing number of academics uh, in the back row who have been really studying this uh, issue, our campaign, uh, and what the governments are going to do about it with interest. So that's where the talks are. They're talks, they're not uh, geared towards a specific outcome at the moment. They do have a more formal status now than they did at the beginning when it was very informal. That formal status means that uh, there are fewer kind of external experts coming in and giving presentations, trying to encourage the discussion from states. It's moved on now to a state-led process India is in charge of these talks at the CCW, and he's been trying his hardest to get governments to prepare substantively beforehand, hold their interagency processes, talk with not just the Ministry of Defense and Foreign Affairs, but science and, and uh, throughout the armed forces in each country, consult with uh, civil society, the Red Cross, uh, and try and you know drill down and, and get a much better understanding of the issues that are on the table at the moment. And, and the issues that were on the table last week were, were basically the same ones that we've covered for the last uh, four meetings before it. Uh, that, that is to say the characteristics or definition of, of what we would regard as a lethal autonomous weapon system. And then uh, the, the notion of human control, human machine interaction uh, between the, the, the weapon system and the human operator. 
Uh, and finally, those are the substantive uh, substantive areas of discussion. And then there is this pathways forward. What are we going to do? The process part of it, which was uh, quite a debate last week and then in November for the states to decide what to do about this next year. And that's something to note is that every year these countries have to agree to keep talking about this topic. And that's a consensus that's not that easy to achieve in, in that body because we have uh, all of the permanent members from the United Nations Security Council. Uh, there's, a, there's a wide range of states in the room. So for them to all agree uh, to keep talking about this is, I guess, the easiest thing that they can do. Figuring out what they can do about it is the hard part. And Mary, before we talk about some of the atmospherics there, um, I, I also wanted to get Paul's take on what happened um, at the, the meeting this past early April. So Paul, any key takeaways for you? You know, I think one um, shift in the discussions was that you did have much more time this year for states to discuss the issues themselves instead of just listening to expert presentations. I thought that was a good decision by the chair to structure it that way. Um, there were times when, you know, I think states kind of ran out of things to say. You know, one of the dynamics is that countries are going to be reluctant to come in there and just kind of kind of ad lib it and, and come up with things on the fly. They're, they're going to want to have prepared statements that are approved by their capitals. Um, so what we did see countries really, you know, many of them come and have, you know, things to say, bringing positions to the floor on issues like human control over weapons or technical characteristics. What do you think is, is valuable? And that's a conversation that we need to have. I mean, I, I agree with Mary. We've really only had a couple weeks of discussions when you total it all up for the past five years. And that is a, a big challenge, is getting countries in the room to do this, uh, particularly given some things like some of the terminology and, and language differences. I mean, autonomy is a slippery concept, even when everybody's speaking the same actual language and can be much harder you know, internationally. One thing I forgot to say is that um, the United States came and the Pentagon representative did quite an interesting presentation, PowerPoint, uh, on the CRAM, an existing weapon system with some autonomy in its functions. Um, and that was something that we've been asking all of the states who are interested in, in these kinds of weapon systems to do, because we want to base these discussions on the near term developments rather than the far off things like Terminators uh, and walking, talking, uh, killer robots. Um, and by doing that, the United States basically opened the door uh, to, to, to others to also follow. So now the pressure is on some of the other countries who we know are interested in these kinds of weapon systems to explain exactly what they're doing uh, and how their current ones function so that we can then determine uh, the human control that, that, that is apparently acceptable now because uh, that'll help us to draw the line later on. So all eyes are now on China, on Russia, Israel, South Korea, the UK. We want to hear from all of those states because they're investing significantly uh, in this kind of technology. So given that attempt, it seems to be fairly energizing. And I know that your uh, organization has been fairly critical of GGE processes, processes last fall in November in the past. Do you feel differently now? Do you feel that there's a certain energy or momentum coming out of this? And uh, given that you've got eyes on different countries, do you think that they're going to deliver? I think that things are starting to turn around, definitely. Uh, it, it, there's now, I think, more of a sense of purpose in the room. We keep a list of countries that uh, support the, the goal of the ban on fully autonomous weapons, and that, that number keeps growing. As a result of last week, we picked up four more countries, and now 26 are now calling for a ban. 
on fully autonomous weapon systems. Austria was on Monday, and that for us was by far the most significant country to come on board uh, the, the, the group, uh, because Austria has been involved in creating some of the, the strongest humanitarian disarmament standard bureaus in the last 20 years, landmines, cluster munitions, uh, and nuclear weapons last year were all prohibited with Austria playing a central role in that. Uh, Colombia and Djibouti also came on board the list, which might not sound like much, but there are now many countries from Latin America who are uh, on board the ban group and who really want to do something about this. And, and for Djibouti, that was kind of representative of what we call the Africa Group of States, uh, which was a, a group of uh, representatives in Geneva who got together and drafted their own statement on this issue and basically uh, said we need to now start moving to develop new international law as quickly as possible and that should be a prohibition. So these regional groups are starting to appear and then we had of course the uh, surprise announcements on Friday afternoon from the delegation of China expressing China's support for a ban on fully autonomous weapons. Uh, and we talked to the delegation afterwards and he qualified the call saying that it applies to use only and not to uh, developments or, or production of fully autonomous weapons. So support for the ban is growing. I think understanding of the human control concept is also expanding and deepening. And we're seeing convergence now on the need for new international law and the need to begin negotiating as quickly as possible. So on Friday afternoon, Austria uh, made a big uh, statement basically calling for the November meeting to uh, move to a negotiating mandate so that a new protocol can be negotiated in 2019. We're expecting that proposal to pick up a lot of support between now and August, between August and November. So who knows where we'll be in November. It could be a very different place in six months' time. So we started breaking it down into uh, discrete countries, and at the risk of leaving Elsa out in the cold, um, I'd like to hit on more of your point about China and their statement on, uh, perhaps pretty aptly, uh, Friday the 13th, where they chose to support a ban on the use of fully autonomous weapons. Elsa, given your extensive scholarship on China in general, AI, um, and autonomous weapons, robotics, etc., um, even quantum technologies, what is your take on this statement from China? Well, first, I think it's very encouraging that China is actively engaged in this process, and I think we should absolutely welcome China's involvement and commitment to discussing these issues and full range of considerations that are involved. At the same time, I think it's important to think realistically about... So one thing I found quite striking, for instance, was the fact that on the same day China announced its a support for a ban on the use of fully autonomous weapons. There, the Chinese People's Liberation Army Air Force also announced further details about a competition they have coming up involving the development of swarms of fully autonomous drones. So certainly I found that a bit of an interesting juxtaposition on a number of levels, and I think it illustrated quite clearly that uh, China's diplomatic position and their commitment to the development of military capabilities that leverage artificial intelligence and autonomy can be a quite, aren't necessarily uh, consistent in certain respects, and I think it's hardly surprising that China is focused on the military potential of AI, and it's certainly not unique in that regard, but I think it certainly remains to be seen how China's involvement and approach will evolve going forward. I hope that certainly a lot of the concerns China expressed about you know, uncontrollable weapons, I think, are 
are consistent with the concerns that military, it, its military may have as well. Certainly, I don't think the Chinese military wants killer robots running amok. Its command culture is focused a lot on centralized command and control, so they wouldn't see a military interest at this point, given the nascency of this technology, necessarily, and having fully autonomous weapons. But I also think it's it'll be interesting to see the direction that these conversations take in China and how that may differ, and at least so far, to the extent that Chinese military thinkers have engaged with these issues, they seem to display sort of less of a knee-jerk ethical reaction to the notion of having AI take on a greater role in command decision-making on the battlefield, and even sort of a greater acceptance of the notion that, that pragmatically speaking, if we, are, if we are in an age of warfare where artificial intelligence could vastly increase the speed and complexity of the battlefield, there could be a point at which the human mind can't keep pace, and at that point, which one Chinese defense academic referred to as a singularity on the battlefield, it could be uh, advantageous for AI to take on a more direct role and for humans to be in more of a supervisory role in decision-making, uh, on rather than fully in the loop, so to speak. And at the same time, uh, China's approach to AI in a military context will be constrained by political and ideological concerns. So I think we can safely say when it comes to high-level strategic decisions, they'll always be focused on having one, at least one human in the loop and fully in control, and that's Xi Jinping, who certainly the Chinese People's Liberation Army is, will remain securely under the control of, of the Chinese Communist Party and acting in accordance with their interests if she has anything to do with it. So I think certainly I hope that China will remain engaged and continue continue in this process and that the Chinese military also will start to think not only about the tremendous capabilities that AI could bring, but some of the vulnerabilities that might arise with its pursuit of these same capabilities that Chinese diplomats might be uh, expressing their commitment to banning the use of, at least. And Paul, given you just wrote an entire book about this subject, Army of None, Autonomous Weapons and the Future of Warfare, out in stores now, um, do you have any takeaways from uh, China's announcement on Friday? You know, I think um, I would agree with, with Mary that I think that the really big significant events coming out of this week's, um, th th this is April discussion is the addition of Austria and China and there's some qualified and caveated way with China to this list of countries supporting a ban. Um, I, you know, I'm not sure that I would see it in quite the same way in terms of, you know, this is picking up steam. I think, you know, remains to be seen um, with China, obviously, what exactly they mean, how serious uh, are they about actually following through on this? Um, you know, is it is it just sort of a, a, a ruse to kind of get some political advantages, or um, do they do they really seriously intend to talk about restraint? If they do, that would be a monumental turning point in conversations um, to have you know one of the leading military powers and a major power on AI say, hey, I'm willing to restrain myself. You know. Put me down a little bit as a as a skeptic. I'm I'm from Missouri, so so show me on, on this one. But um, but Austria, you know, their addition is significant um, and and I think I think quite genuine. And it's correct me if I'm wrong, Mary. It's sort of the first Western democratic power to sort of stand up and say that they support a ban. Is that is that correct, or? First country from the European Union. Okay. Yeah. Policy was first from Europe. <laughs> the Vatican. Oh yeah. Okay. Right. So um, right. So I think that's a, that's. A, I mean, that's a really significant shift and something that you know in past issues, um, you know, Mary, interesting your take on this, but it seems like that was a major factor in uh, bans on landmines and cluster munitions, right? Yeah. Um, the tr my ban treaty 
and the Convention on Cluster Munitions, the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the Arms Trade Treaty, these all had what we call core groups of states behind them. And a core group is, is less than 10 countries, really. Uh, it's, it's small to medium-sized countries, usually. Canada was the leader of the core group on the landmines. Norway was the leader uh, on cluster munitions. Uh, the question is who's going to be in the leadership uh, of the core group uh, on killer robots, and who else is going to participate in that group. There's certainly plenty of states who are now willing to step forward and participate uh, in, a, in, an, in, in, in coordinated work on this. Uh, it's just you've got to have the right kind of balance there between regionally, uh, big, small, uh, medium size. Um, but when you get the core group starting, uh, that means that they're putting a plan together. And uh, that's exciting for us because we can talk to Austria, we can talk to these other governments, they treat the campaign to stop killer robots with respect, um, and they're quite focused on what the outcome should be. Uh, be it at the Convention on Conventional Weapons or in another forum, because uh, that's also possible to do. We don't have to keep this issue at the CCW if it's not going to produce anything. And I think that as we enter the fifth year, there's definitely impatience, not just from the back of the room from the non-governmental organizations, but from a lot of the countries who've been engaging in this uh, over, the, over the recent period, but particularly because there were some massive uh, financial and administrative hurdles last year at the United Nations that kind of uh, delayed uh, the meetings from taking place. And we're now over that. We're, we're now kind of back on track. So lots of things are starting to come together now. And we know that uh, when things start to come together, things start to move quickly. Uh, so I'm, I'm more and more confident now that we are going to get an outcome on this and it will be sooner rather than later. And it really couldn't be. Uh, much sooner because we're right on the edge now. So then, Mary and Paul, you, I'd be interested to get both of your thoughts on this. You, we, one of the underlying themes here is the issue of consensus. So you touched on it a little bit, Mary, but what do you think about the efficacy of standalone treaties instead? What is the importance of a treaty that doesn't include all of the countries? Is that still going to work? You talked about the core group sort of leading the way, but, but what happens with these standalone treaties? Are they effective in your opinion? And then, Paul, I'd like to hear from you on this as well. I mean, we know how to create a new protocol at the CCW. The CCW is like a Christmas tree, a framework convention, and there are different uh, protocols that come out of it on different weapon systems. So this would be protocol six if they decide to go that way. And there's already a good precedent at the CCW for preemptively banning a weapon system. Uh, back in 1995, China, the United States, Russia, all of them managed to agree to ban blinding lasers, laser weapons that would permanently blind soldiers. Um, so it can be done in the CCW, and we're still there in the room after all of this time, urging them to do something uh, there. Um, but we also know how to take it outside if uh, there's a decision to do that. It requires the political leadership that we talked about before. It requires the champion states who have got the plan, uh, and it requires the kind of the the, the it, 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 we need to see the CCW kind of get to a moment where it has to take a decision, and if it fails to kind of move this to the next level, which for us now is negotiations, then that that prompts people to go outside and find another place to do this. Um, so that definitely could happen, and that's what happened on landmines uh, and on cluster munitions. 
And uh, I spent the, you know, the, the past two decades working to make sure that those treaties are effective and functioning, that countries have signed and ratified them, have passed their national legislation, have, de have issued their transparency report declaring what they've got in their stockpiles, uh, that they've put together their plan to collect the stocks of landmines or cluster munitions and to destroy them within the time period set down by the treaty, make sure that the countries who are affected by these weapons, who've got them in the ground, have got a plan to clear them within a certain period of time, have got a plan to assist the people who have been harmed by these weapon systems, because they're comprehensive, right? These are not just disarmament treaties, they're humanitarian as well. Um, so I believe that those treaties are providing the framework for a mind-free world, for a world of outclass munitions. Are certain countries still using those weapons? Yes. Uh, and we take that question all the time on Twitter, you know, what's the point? They're just going to cheat. Uh, and we look at landmines and it's the government of Myanmar. Look at cluster munitions and it's the government of, of Syria using cluster munitions right now. Those are rogue states, pariah states. Those, it's not, those, these are not weapons systems that are regarded as valid anymore. They've been stigmatized to the extent that you just get these, these, these kinds of countries using them. Uh, and in the case of landmines, we have improvised explosive devices, which if they function by the contact of a, of a person, they actually qualify as anti-personnel landmines and are prohibited by the mine ban treaty. So there's a lot of work still to do with non-state armed groups uh, because ISIS uh, has made extensive use of those improvised mines in Iraq and Syria over the last year. But on the whole, these problems are isolated. They're not widespread. And on the whole, uh, the countries who are part of these agreements are, are abiding by them and implementing them in good faith. So Mary kind of gives an NGO-driven perspective, but Paul, you come more from the defense side, given your experience at the Pentagon as an Army Ranger, et cetera, et cetera. So what is your more defense-minded take on um, what Mary just talked about, especially regarding standalone treaties? Yeah, yeah, I do have a different perspective on kind of the value of those treaties. Um, I think that, and part of it does, does come from thinking about not just the humanitarian consequences, but also the military value of those kinds of weapons. Um, I think one important difference between, say, landmines and autonomous weapons is, you know, what is the military value of this weapon? Um, landmines have some military usefulness, um, but a lot of countries could give them up, and it may not have a decisive difference. Um, you know, look, if the United States got into a war with a, you know, a smaller country with, with Myanmar, the fact that Myanmar has uh, landmines is not going to decisively tip the balance here. Um, with autonomous weapons, it remains to be seen. And there are certainly people who argue that they'll be a decisive weapon, um, that having it you know, would dramatically tilt the balance of power. I don't know that that's actually obvious. Um, if you talk about military robotics as a whole, I'd say yes, that's, that's really significant. Um, and we've done a, a lot of work here at, at CNAS on things like the value of swarming in combat. You know, when you compare, say, a fully autonomous weapon to one that has lots of autonomy, but still has a human in the loop approving targets, I'm not sure. I think there are gonna be cases where that matters, um, where you may have you know, contested electromagnetic environments and jamming. What does that add up to as a whole? Is it really a decisive advantage? TBD. Um, you know, I think there is this, so, so this question is sort of rogue states and what happens when some rogue states don't adhere to it, because that'll always be the case. More broadly, I don't really see the value in um, a treaty in atomic weapons that doesn't include major leading military powers and robotics developers. 
Um, you know, that's certainly possible to envision a point in time where some group of like-minded states bounces out on their own and creates a, a standalone treaty on autonomous weapons, like in the case of landmines and cluster munitions. But, you know, if it doesn't include um, at least some critical mass of countries who would be building these, you know, it's a little bit like a group of people that don't smoke get together and sign a paper and say they're not going to smoke. Okay. Um, but I don't know that it really drives what happens on the battlefield in the real world in a way that's going to have meaningful impact. Um, uh, so I think, you know, we'll, we'll see on that front. Any rebuttal, Mary? <laughs> Just to say, you know, at the time when we were trying to get landmines banned, everybody was like, you're crazy. This is the most widely available weapon. It's in everybody's arsenals. It's been used all over the place. You know, it's got high military utility. Uh, we, and we were arguing, well, the humanitarian uh, consequences far outweigh that military utility. And, and that was the argument that we, we won on the, on the mine ban treaty and the stigma now is, is attached to those weapon systems. We're trying to stigmatize the uh, use of a weapon system to the extent that you no longer have human control over the functions of selecting and attacking targets. That's our focus, is on the selection of targets and on the, on the kill decision. Uh, we think that that is possible, but I, I agree with Paul. We need it to happen at the CCW or in some way with the major powers who are so keenly interested uh, in these kinds of weapon systems. That's, that's really where this needs to happen. Um, but if it doesn't, we, we want to have the, the rules here. We need to have the, the law, the norm. Uh, it's not good enough to have policies. Uh, to have commitments, to have pledges. We hear a lot from states saying, we've got no plans to develop uh, killer robots. You know, we'd never have these things. And we're like, that's great. Then what's your problem here with dra drafting up the preemptive ban treaty? Um, uh, that results in a longer answer. But uh, yeah, I think it's possible. So then speaking of more focused norms in that way, what about some sort of narrower ban, like an anti-personnel autonomous weapons ban? How would your group react to that? Are there any discussions going on along those lines that you've been considering? I've read the book. I've, I've seen the recommendations in Paul's book. <laughs> you got you us. Know, and my feedback to Paul was, I like this because you don't propose nothing. You don't propose the do-nothing option. Uh, and, and when the chair was summing up on Friday, he said there were four options that he could see ahead in terms of pathways. One was to say that existing international law will be fine and we'll take care of this. You know, if we just talk more about the legal reviews of weapon systems under Article 36 of the Geneva Conventions. Um, and, and another kind of uh, recommendation he put down was also a, basically a do-nothing approach, which was the, the US, uh, Russia, Israel, UK, who are all saying it's too early to prejudge the, uh, the outcome for this. Uh, we need more time to consider this. We need to talk more about the possible benefits or advantages and the, and the risks involved. Uh, let's all just slow down here, guys, you know. Uh, and in the middle, he outlined the, the, the other two options. One is the kind of soft law, politically binding measures. Uh, France and Germany have got a proposal to, to go for what they call a political declaration affirming the importance of human control over weapon systems and the importance of international humanitarian law. Uh, and, and for them, they keep calling this interim steps. You know, this is not the end of the road, Mary. It's, it's just uh, some things that we can try as we, as we continue to try and resolve this. Our concern with those politically binding measures is that they can be rabbit holes from which you go down and you never come back up and see the sky again because you get lost in them. 
Uh, and who's going to remember the political declaration in 100 years' time? This is why we call for international law, and that's why that was the fourth option which uh, the chair laid down on the table. And that really is becoming increasingly the most viable one for the majority of countries in the room. A majority of states now see an urgent need to move to negotiate new international law on this. Um, and a majority want to give it a go at the CCW. So if anything's changed over the last five years, it's, it's that fact that we've now got this convergence around the need for new international law as quickly as possible. Can you say what you mean by that, Mary? Because I don't see that a majority um, yet. We've got, what, 80 to 100 or so countries in the CCW there in the room, and, and your numbers are like, so where are you, how are you thinking about that, that you're thinking about in that, that So way? there's about 125 states parties to the Convention on Conventional Weapons. The meetings to date have attracted between 70 and 80 states. They're open to all countries. You don't have to be a party to the CCW. Uh, and what we've seen since November is some large group statements. So in November, the non-aligned movement, NAM, uh, came out with a very big uh, statement. They issued a working paper uh, saying that we need to move to negotiate new international law as quickly as possible to regulate or prohibit uh, fully autonomous weapons. Uh, and then you have the Africa group statement as well, which was between 40 and 50 countries. We need them to articulate that at the, the national level. Uh, the group of banned states, 26, are now obviously uh, demanding a prohibition, which would have to be enshrined in international law. You know, we're, we're looking at what everybody is saying on this, and we're not seeing a lot of support for the softer politically binding measures that France and Germany are proposing. Only a few European countries have expressed interest in that. So when we say the, the majority, it is for us, uh, multilateral multi negotiations are about the numbers. Uh, they are about the blocks of countries uh, when, when you get into the negotiating room. Uh, and that's why we say majority. So you're looking at statements from the Africa group, NAM, and sort of looking at them as a whole, even though in some cases you don't have all of those countries speaking up at the national level. Mm. But we are under no illusions here that you know we're going to be able to get this over the over this you know over the line uh, in Geneva just by talking to the diplomats. That's not how this is going to happen. This is going to happen when we in the campaign to stop killer robots start doing serious national outreach, and that's what we're starting to do: is scale up at the national level to create the public awareness, which is just clearly not there at the moment. There has been a lot of media coverage. You know, People have seen the stories, but they haven't really connected that to their daily lives and what these weapon systems could mean uh, for them. Because we know that when weapon systems are developed, oftentimes they're not just restricted to a certain use or, or even just use in warfare. They can end up being used in policing and law enforcement, uh, riot control, and other circumstances too. So we need that national debate to start to happen that national scrutiny of what the government positions are, what they're telling the, the, the room in Geneva, uh, and the political leadership will emerge from that as well. Uh, we've got to do a lot of work at that level, I think, in order to make progress in Geneva. I think there's a lot to unpack there in the dual-use nature of these technologies. And building on that, um, I think Elsa's already written an entire paper in the time that we've been talking here. But I wanted to ask you a question, especially with regard to Chinese-U.S. competition with China. Um, so there is an argument that a ban would prohibit research on potentially valuable uses of autonomy, especially in this competition. Do you have any thoughts on that in particular, Elsa, to close? I suppose uh, it's too early to say perhaps what a ban would look like or entail. 
Uh, looking at what China's position appears to be so far, one concern I would have is that if, if lethal autonomous weapon systems are defined in a very narrow way, so for instance, based on China's second position paper on the topic, they stipulate that such weapons should be entirely indiscriminate. So by extension, conceivably, a uh, autonomous weapon system that was capable of being operated in accordance with international humanitarian law would be permissible, perhaps. Or I think there's a lot of a lot of leeway for interpretation in terms of how China has framed this issue diplomatically. And I think it's also important to take into account that the Chinese military itself often has a different approach to to law and thinks in terms of legal warfare or the use of law in order to constrain or delegitimize de adversaries rather than as something that should restrict its own behavior. So I think certainly as we proceed with thinking about what a ban might be or look like, I think it's important to take into account how do we ensure that it's more than something symbolic, that if there were to be any sort of binding measure, how, how would we ensure that states actually were acting in good faith and proceeding with it and that it would have tangible effect? Like another, perhaps another way to frame the issue in the context of the competition is if if there are concerns that this may be an AI arms race, which is perhaps too, too narrow a framing of a very complex technology in which there's co cooperation and competition and implications across every sector of our economy, societies, and militaries. But if we do have those concerns, another way to frame the issue might be thinking about what does artificial intelligence mean for strategic stability? And if we are concerned that the US, China, and or Russia, or some, co some combination of military powers might continue to develop these capabilities regardless of what happens diplomatically, then how do we think about a pragmatic way to move forward that would try to mitigate the risks that might result? And certainly, even during the Cold War, and I hope we are not in a time that is heading in that direction, but I think certainly competition is intensifying among great powers. But even, even in worse times, major militaries were able to discuss threats to strategic stability and issues of nuclear safety, for instance. The, even the U.S. was willing to share technology and permissive action links to ensure, ensure a secure command and control of nuclear weapons. So I think, another, I think certainly another way to approach the issue might be think, thinking a little bit more pragmatically about what might militaries want to commit to in terms of their operation of capabilities that clearly many are developing. So for instance, even commitment to certain standards of safety, testing and verification to ensure that if it does prove impossible to constrain fully this sort of, th th this trend, then how do we think about managing the risks of li living in a world where you do have widespread proliferation of these capabilities? So I think that can definitely could be a distinct line of effort from this track at the UNGG and otherwise. but. Certainly, I think something something worth considering if we take a little bit more of a skeptical approach, perhaps, on how some of this may play out in the years to come. At the same time, with regard to U.S.-China competition more broadly, I think certainly, again, I'm skeptical about whether China would be would be willing to constrain its development of these capabilities, and I think there may also be asymmetries in terms of how Chinese companies and researchers react to this sort of national-level pressure, that even if individual AI engineers and researchers in China may not personally support uh, what their military is pursuing in terms of development of AI-enabled capabilities. There may be less leeway for true civil society mobilization within that system. At the national level, China's pursuing a strategy of military civil fusion, so there's clearly a <laughs> effort to leverage uh, a lot of these synergies between commercial and defense developments, 
major Chinese universities like Tsinghua are working on things like swarm intelligence. Uh, so clearly, uh, a number of Chinese companies also appear to be open to to uh, applications of their technologies, either in the context of defense or even in surveillance, which is a whole other no dimension of the human rights issues here that I think are also deeply concerning and very much uh, capabilities that are here now. And if you look at what's happening in China on the surveillance and censorship front, a lot of that is quite troubling, especially if you look at a nature of activities in Xinjiang, and I think certainly a risk that the, this sort of system and the focus on leveraging AI for social control could proliferate beyond China as a number of companies market these capabilities globally. So that's a, another dimension of the human rights issue that I am deeply concerned about. But I think certainly uh, yeah, going forward, I think competition in AI goes far beyond the military realm, and I hope that the U.S. can continue to focus on things like investing in research, deepening public-private partnership where feasible, and supporting talent, which perhaps is the real arms race at the end of the day, that who has the most experts to advance the development of technology that is truly transformative in a number of positive ways beyond beyond killer robots of the Terminator or whatever sci-fi dystopias we may be heading for. So I'm not sure if I've quite answered your question, but I think it's certainly, no, exactly. it's, it'll be fascinating to see where all of this goes. And I'm, I hope there are reasons for optimism. And I think certainly at the very least, starting these debates and engaging states and stakeholders with a range of positions and perspectives is a good way to start thinking about the a world in which uncertainty about technologies and capabilities may be the only certain thing. So any final thoughts from Mary and Paul, especially regarding the loss of research capacity? Well, I think it'd just be interesting to see where discussions continue to go uh, internationally. We have another um, meeting scheduled in a couple months, and so it'll be interesting to see whether we, you know, this ends up being a shift in conversations, as Mary kind of indicated, or um, will it just continue, you know, very incremental progress? Maybe just two things from me. I was, I was glad to hear a description of it, uh, of that the so-called AI arms race being probably less about actual weapons and what is produced, but about the talent. It's the race to recruit uh, the talent uh, to work and to develop artificial intelligence. And we're seeing now an awakening at Google, at some of the other major companies by the employees who are, who are not happy that, uh, you know, those big corporations are now starting to work closer with the military. Um, everybody wants to feel good about their job at the end of the day, and and I think they're going to matter too in this conversation, and they already do. I don't want people to think that the artificial intelligence experts and roboticists and engineers and computer scientists are not uh, already deeply involved in this uh, issue because they are, and they've been articulating their views on this in, in many different ways. Um, and maybe just on the proliferation question, I had a raucous hour-long discussion with the delegation of Russia last November, and it basically ended with me yelling at the delegates saying, what do you want to do, negotiate a non-proliferation treaty in 20 years? Because that's the path that you're going to put us on if you keep saying we need more time. Uh, you know, we don't understand what we're talking about. Uh, you know, all of these countries now have to come forward and share what they think we're talking about. Uh, so that common understandings can be reached, and that forms the basis for international agreement that can then be enshrined in, in new law. Great. I don't think you'll be the last person to yell at the Russians either. But thank you, Mary. Thank you, Elsa. Thank you, Paul, for joining us today. Thanks, Karen. Thank you. Thank you.